0: Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we're talking to Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips. He's going to talk about how his lifelong obsession with inflatable vinyl bubbles really came in handy during the pandemic. Plus, we're gonna actually hear a version of their song, Do You Realize, recorded inside one of those bubbles. It's got to be a LiveWire and probably a public radio first. Also, we're going to talk to Daisy Hernandez about her book, the kissing bug. Now that sounds like it could be like a young adult romance novel or something, but it's kind of anything but. It's really a rare and largely misunderstood illness that tends to affect Latinx people in the U.S., including Daisy's own aunt. It's a really fascinating story that you're going to want to stick around for. So that is the plan this week. Space bubbles and kissing bugs, you know, typical Livewire stuff. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. I know you're traveling a lot this summer, but here in Portland where I am, it has finally gotten warm, and now it's too warm. It went from... Already? Yeah. It was, really <laughs> yeah. went from zero to 90 out here, but uh, we're getting through it. Are you ready to do a little station location identification examination? Let's do it. All right. This is where I'm going to describe a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. Elena, you have to try to guess where I'm talking about. This is the birthplace of Steve Martin, the comedian, actor, and art collector, you could say. I read his memoir somewhere in California. He definitely performed, I believe, at like a... Knott's Berry Farm. Theme park in California, but this is east of there. This is also where Dr. Pepper was invented. The drink, not the person. Waco, Texas? Waco, Texas is exactly right. Steve Martin's from Waco, Texas? This is what the Livewire producers are telling me, and they're usually right about these things. That's where we're on the radio in Waco on KWBU. Radio, the birthplace of Steve Martin and Dr. Pepper. Who knew? All right, Elena, should we uh, get going? Let's do it. All right, take it away.
2: From PRX, it's
3: LiveWire. This week, writer Daisy Hernandez... She may not have been as interested in me being an obedient child as much as she wanted me to be a Colombian child. Like, she wanted me to have, like, certain aspects of her culture. Rock star Wayne Coyne.
4: You know, the job that I have really is one of the weirdest jobs in the world where it kind of is based on you doing what you like.
2: Plus music from his band, The Flaming Lips. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello.
0: And now, the host of LiveWire, Lou. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all over the country, including down there in Waco, Texas. We have a great show in store for you this week. Of course, we asked the LiveWire listeners a question. We asked, what's the most memorable live performance you have ever seen? We're going to talk to Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips about this incredible concert they put on where everybody was in these vinyl space bubbles. So we're going to hear the listener responses coming up in a minute. First, though, it's time for... The best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is actually some good news happening out there in the world on occasion. Elena, what is the best news that you heard this week?
2: All right. Superhuman news coming out of Canada. Okay. North Saanich, British Columbia, to be specific, where a mom named Kate Oakley lives with her partner And her kids, she had two kids. She recently welcomed four-month-old Willow to the brood, and she lives in some kind of property that is big enough to have chickens, and the chickens have a guard goose named Frankie. (laughs) Frankie is a beloved member of Kate's Posse, and a couple of days ago, Frankie was in danger. This whole harrowing story was covered by Kate's doorbell cam. Okay. And so this video that she put on TikTok that was taken by her doorbell cam is going around. She was inside the house breastfeeding Willow, and then she hears Frankie start making crazy guard goose noises, really, really crazy noises. And then the doorbell cam picks up this huge bald eagle flying not just onto the property— but onto the front porch of Kate's house and pulling Frankie the Goose out into the driveway and about to lift off with this goose in its talons. What?
0: I thought you were just going to say it was like Amazon delivery or something.
2: It looked like an Amazon delivery in reverse, but instead of a package, it was a goose. And instead of an Amazon delivery driver, it was a gigantic bald freaking eagle. Oh, my gosh. And so the, the eagle is trying to lift this squawking goose up into the sky, and then out comes Kate Oakley. She's in her all-togethers, <laughs> and she's still breastfeeding her baby. <laughs> baby in one arm, the other arm flying around. The, the eagle drops the goose. The goose runs away, and then she just runs back inside, and she posted it to TikTok with the caption, Mama Bear protects sweet Frankie even while breastfeeding.
0: My goodness, the baby was not having a latching problem baby was very engaged in the feeding (laughs) process. That's amazing.
2: The baby was like, whoa, but um, you know, it's kind a lot of people have been sort of embracing this as just like this great symbol of like how strong and amazing motherhood is and how important breastfeeding is. Kate herself has been telling places like the today show that breastfeeding is a full-time job. So, you know, you got to do it all the time, even when your beloved goose is in danger. And she also says I've chased off birds of prey many times before, but just not with a baby attached to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is incredible. I also have a bird story that I saw this week. This one comes from here in Portland, Oregon, where I am right now. Uh, It involves uh, a husband and wife named Osguar and Asli Ilmaz. Apologies for my um, probably questionable pronunciation. They're originally from Turkey, but they've been living in Iowa for a while, and then they'd moved out to Portland for a job. And they don't have any kids, but they do have four parrots that they love they're like very i saw pictures of them they would take these parrots out for walks in portland they'd put them in like a clear backpack with like air vents in them so that the parrots could see portland without actually flying off or being exposed to danger and so Uh, They're out on the porch of their uh, condo at some point and they have the the parrots in a kind of cage out there on the porch and these crows start noticing that the parrots are on the porch and they're Mm -hmm. flying down. Now, the parrots are protected. They're in this cage. But at some point, Osley decides, okay, I'm going to take them inside. And as she's transferring them from the cage on the porch to this other little device to get them inside, one of the crows swoops down and Joy, the parrot, gets really spooked and just takes off, just <gasps> flies off into the sky. They, they worry never to be seen again. So <sighs> Osley and Osguar, they immediately email everyone in their building. Hey, we're missing a parrot. Here's a photo of Joy. They print up those like lost parrot flyers, which they're tacking up all over Portland. But about a mile away, uh, a woman living in a different condominium here in Portland noticed that her cat was acting up. And it was because sitting on her porch was this parrot It turned out to be Joy. She did not know how to deal with birds or with parrots. So she called her downstairs neighbor who's in the Audubon Society. And she only knew about this because that downstairs neighbor regularly sends emails to the apartment building trying to raise money for the Audubon Society. So they get Audubon Society neighbor in there. And she's Googling, what do you feed a parrot? So they cut up some apples and some broccoli. And they put the (laughs) apples and broccoli out on the porch for Joy the parrot. So Joy's eaten the apples. So they send out an email to their entire apartment building saying, "We found this parrot. Has anybody lost a parrot?" Nobody in the building had lost Joy. Then somebody else who lives in the building, they're on a walk like 2 days mm-hmm. later in Portland and they walk by one of the flyers <gasps> for missing parrot and they basically like come back to their apartment building Call the Audubon Society lady, who's now sent Joy out to her mother-in-law's house out in Beaverton, where there's more room for the (laughs) parrot to hang out. Anyway, over the course of about 20 different emails, phone calls, right hands talking to left hands and various condominium buildings in Portland triangulating information, Joy the Parrot was finally returned (laughs) To her family in the lobby of the condo building with like 20 people there. All the different people who were involved in this weird relay of information involving joy were all. And what's really cute is this bird is so affectionate. There are multiple photos in the Oregonian of this bird kissing people, sitting on people's heads. I did not realize how affectionate these birds could be. It was really adorable. They're very social. Especially when they want a cracker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when reached for quote, Joy said, Joy want a cracker. So anyway, that's the best news that I saw this week. All right, let's get our first guest on over to the show. Daisy Hernandez is the author of the award-winning memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Her latest book is The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. And it explains in really meticulous detail something called Chagas disease, uh, which largely affects Latinx people around the world, including Daisy's own aunt. So take a listen to this. It's our conversation we recorded with Daisy last August. Daisy Hernandez, welcome to LiveWire.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Can we just sort of start at the beginning here uh, of of this story, I guess you could call it? What is the so-called kissing bug disease?
3: The kissing bug disease or Chagas disease is a parasitic illness uh, that's transmitted by these insects, uh, colloquially named kissing bugs in English. And it's a neglected disease um, that can be pretty deadly. One in three people who are infected can go on to develop pretty severe cardiac complications because of this parasite. Um, About six million people have it in the Americas, mostly that's South America, Central America, and Mexico. And in the US, we have about 300,000 people who have this disease and um, it's a zoonotic disease. Of course, it jumps from wildlife to us and disproportionately in the United States, it affects Latinx immigrants like my auntie who I write about in the book.
0: Yeah, this story is very personal to you because this is something that your your aunt uh, had to live with, the kind of long-term effects of having uh, Chagas disease. What did that look like in her life and what did it look like for you in terms of how your family talked about it? Like, did you know as a kid that this is what was afflicting your tia?
3: Yeah, I did know. that I knew the word. I knew that there was a certain level of discomfort in our family, a sort of fear of stigma, because it was seen as being rare and, you know, we didn't know anyone else who had Chagas disease. And this was back in the 1980s. So it was also unfortunately happening in the context of the AIDS crisis at that time. And I think my auntie, as an immigrant to the U.S., was also very sensitive to being an outsider. She was she was also very much a kind of striver immigrant. She, she wanted to establish herself in the U.S. She wanted to become a teacher and pursue that kind of dream. So she was really sensitive. She basically spent her whole life never speaking about her illness to any of her co-workers or people outside of our family. Um, so there was a lot of mystery around it. Part of the reason that I wanted to work on the book was because I realized how little I knew, even though she was in and out of hospitals over the years. In her case, the parasite did not attack the heart. It attacked the gastrointestinal system, which is what happens for some people. And, and she finally lost her life um, to this disease. It doesn't have a cure once you're in that chronic stage, which unfortunately most people uh, are don't get a diagnosis in those first, two months where medication could be helpful. It's a disease that disproportionately affects poor people from Latin America.
0: Uh, You write in this book about how complicated your relationship was with your aunt. How much of that do you think, if any of it, is attributable to her illness?
3: That's an interesting question. So I write in the book that we were always um, in conflict over something. And when I was young, it was her her wanting me to be a good girl. And I guess I was a little feminist at the age of five and had opinions (laughs) and was happy to tell her my opinions. And then later in my life, when I came out as queer, as bisexual, she really struggled with that and could not accept that. Where it connects with this disease is that she very deeply cared what other people thought of her and how other people saw her. And she was very determined, as I said, to have the kind of middle class lifestyle that she did not have growing up. And she comes from she came from a family of very modest means in Colombia So she was very much, despite her disease, and and in some ways, I think sometimes because of her disease, like intent (laughs) on overcoming and on having uh, this good life. Also, writing about it helped me to appreciate that she may not have been as interested in me being an obedient child as much as she wanted me to be a Colombian child. Like she wanted me to have like certain aspects of her culture where Girls are raised to be much more submissive and polite, and that did not, you know, include room for an outspoken, slightly obnoxious niece, <laughs> queer niece.
0: I didn't help that your sister was like the sort of picture golden of, child of, of perfection in your aunt's <laughs> eyes, right? <laughs>
3: Yes. In my perspective, my sister was the golden child. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's also a common dynamic in families, right? Where Mm -hmm. one sibling Mm -hmm. becomes a bit of the black sheep and the other one becomes the golden sheep. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening back to a conversation we had with the writer and journalist Daisy Hernandez. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be back with much more. what we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. z pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zebiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Z your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to Zbiotics.com slash. Livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code Livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to Live Wire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to a conversation we had with writer Daisy Hernandez about her book, The Kissing Bug, recorded last August. Uh, let's pick back up with that conversation. Let's talk about this actual bug. I mean, kissing bug is a deeply misleading way to describe this thing that can pass on the parasite. Where are these bugs found? What are What are they actually doing when they're sort of infecting people?
3: Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned the name as being much sweeter than the insect deserves. And to be fair, these insects have been in the United States for quite a long time. And in the Southwest and in Texas, people actually have nicknamed them bloodsuckers, which is probably more accurate Mm -hmm. as a nickname for these insects. You know, they target mammals. um, So it's not just us humans, it's also dogs. Dogs throughout Texas have been found to carry Chagas disease. Um, It's also possums, you know, all sorts of uh, small mammals that these insects can get a hold of. And they... Uh, they're a bit vampiric or vampire-like uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that they don't like the daylight. They don't like the sun. So they are spending the daytime hiding out. And in the U.S., that oftentimes looks like hiding out in a nest for rodents or for anything like that. And they're definitely found in South America, Central America, and Mexico in more rural areas. And so they will hide in the crevices of people's homes and come out at night. They will also hide under the bed as well. I mean, they're very uh, resilient insects. <laughs> yeah, And Unlike other insects that we think about in terms of transmitting disease, these insects are not doing it with a bite. They are biting you, um, but the parasite's actually being deposited in their fecal material.
0: As if this needed to be a more upsetting transmission. (laughs) That was a very vivid part of the book for me was describing essentially how this is transmitted. I mean, it's, it's about as gross as you can imagine.
3: It's it's not pleasant. Absolutely. It's not pleasant. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, what happens is um, people, you know, when they're asleep, they don't necessarily know that the bites are happening. So they might rub their arm, then introducing that fecal material with the parasite right into the wound or into the eye area or the mouth. It's a little bit different than what we usually think of when we think about bug bites, mm-hmm. the bite itself being the transmission point.
0: We're talking to Daisy Hernandez. Her new book is The Kissing Bug. You you grew up, I think you write, with being sort of squeamish about these bugs because they were seen as dangerous and, uh, frankly, are just sort of gross. And then you end <laughs> up in the book in a lab with a whole lot of these kissing bugs. How was that for you?
3: That was terrifying. <laughs> uh, yeah. When I started working on this, I would actually – you know, I I, would, I needed to read a num- quite a number of science articles, and I didn't realize that these scientists are not squeamish. <laughs> and so they included photographs, sometimes very detailed photos of these insects. And there's many species of them, I, I should say. So, um, so I would open up these PDFs and then try to manipulate the documents so that I could read the text but not look at the photos. So I would kind of like pull oh, the wow. PDF off screen.
0: <laughs> Your self-censorship. You weren't just sort of trying to dramatize that for the book. I mean, you really were very uncomfortable with this stuff initially.
3: <laughs> very, very uncomfortable. Yep, there's no dr- dramatizing in the book. It really <laughs> was terrible. And then I ended up in this lab, you know, and I tell my students, it's um, you really never know where nonfiction is going to take you because, yes, I end up in this lab with these shelves uh, full of jars of kissing bugs uh, or blood suckers, and you know the, the the research assistant who's showing me these insects just pulls a jar off the shelf and is like, "Oh look!" You know, and puts <laughs> it up in my face, and that was one of those moments where I took a step back and I was really glad that I had my notebook with me and my pen because I held on very tightly for dear life, and so yeah, it was really it was quite a shift. <laughs>
0: Uh, what would you like to see changed in terms of of, of U.S. health policy? Like you said, uh, most of the people dealing with this are often from Latinx countries. How can we do a better job of helping to take care of these folks?
3: I have big ambitions and then more practical little ambitions. <laughs> so my big ambition is I would love to see our health, entire healthcare system turned around so that it's not profit driven. Mm. And that was an important chapter for me to include in the book, you know, just the, the challenges that there are in terms of getting the pharmaceutical industry interested in creating treatments and pursuing treatments for diseases that Affect for people where there's not going to be a profit for them. Um, but then, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, before we revolutionize the entire healthcare industry, <laughs> you know, more practical ambitions are like getting prenatal screening for Latinx moms in the U.S. Um, California also, uh, California has the highest number of people with this disease. And there's there is uh, essentially very little public outreach uh, and public education. Some of that is beginning to happen for medical schools. Um, The CDC has awarded certain grants. And so there's more awareness now than there was seven years ago when I started this book, but it is still so uh, little, you know, so I I want a doctor and nurses in the emergency room who might see a Latinx patient coming in with, you know, heart failure, who otherwise is very healthy and is in their 40s, that they will think about Chagas disease and consider, wait, should we be testing this person's rather than classifying them as as just sort of of unknown cause?
0: We've been talking a little bit about the two parts of this book. There's the, the science journalism part of it, and then there's the, the memoir piece. Um, and I, I'm just curious, in writing the memoir piece about your aunt who you had a complicated relationship with, what do you think she would have made of this book? I mean, she was sort of private about her battles with Chagas disease, um, but also I would have to imagine she would be proud of, of the work you put into this. It's a very, very well-researched and well-written book.
3: Yeah, I've thought about that and I I think she would have mixed feelings. I think that exactly what you said. I think she would have been very proud of the work because she was always, she did go on to become a a teacher in the United States and she taught Spanish at the elementary school level and she got her master's degree in Spanish literature. So I think she would have been very proud of me doing this work. I think she would have been amazed at how much I learned about the disease. I think so much of it would have been new for her as well, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if she would have been happy about me being out as a queer person and probably about sharing about her own life. But it's, it's so hard to know. I still, kind of hold on to the idea that people change with time and um, she may have begun to be more open especially if i would have been able to have introduced her to other families that had this disease Mm -hmm. so because she lived and died like you know in isolation essentially with this disease
0: well uh she comes off as a fascinating person and just an absolute survivor in this book daisy hernandez thank you so much for coming on livewire
3: thank you so much
0: that was Daisy Hernandez right here on LiveWire. Her book, The Kissing Bug, A True Story of a Family, an Insect, and a Nation's Neglect of a Deadly Disease is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Aparna Bala Subramani. Of Beaverton, Oregon, and Stacy Owen of Portland, Oregon. Aparna and Stacy are part of the LiveWire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month, which, as I mentioned each week, is how we are able to keep doing the show. So big shout out of appreciation to Aparna and Stacy for keeping LiveWire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask our listeners a question and because we were talking to the great Wayne Coyne on the program this week, and the, the Flaming Lips, his band, they put on some of the most incredible shows of all time. We asked our listeners, what's the most memorable live performance you've ever seen? Elena has been collecting up those responses. What do you see in
2: A lot of these are giving me major FOMO, mm. um, but not this one.
0: Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Phil says, I would say Tom Petty was the best live performance I've ever seen. But someone accidentally hit me in the head during the show. I suffered a concussion, and now my only memory of that night is him playing American Girl. Wow. (laughs) So
0: this person lost their memory of every song during the concert with the exception of... I mean, American Girl is a good song, though. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'm trying to think of a Tom Petty song, that, like a bad Tom Petty song. I can't honestly think of one right now. But uh, uh, if you're going to remember one, that's a good one to remember. Yeah. But let's get to the point. Let's roll another audience card.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> What's another memorable live performance one of our audience members saw?
2: I love this one from Reby. Reby says, Red Rocks Amphitheater, 1974, John Denver. She says, I was 14. It was back when parents just dropped kids off at concerts and picked them up when there were no restrictions on bringing stuff to a concert. So we children were surrounded by adults drinking alcohol and smoking weed. Those were the days.
0: That 100% describes my childhood. Just going places with, and there were no cell phones. So there was just absolutely no keeping tabs on anyone, which I quite enjoyed as a young person Mm -hmm. who was... Kind of a little bit of a, you know, juvenile delinquent. But that would have been a cool show to be at, John Denver at Red Rocks. Like, that's the most Colorado thing that could ever happen. Uh, Okay, one more memorable live performance one of our listeners saw.
2: Uh, This one sounds pretty good. It's from EJ. Bob Marley and the Whalers in July 1975 at the boarding house in San Francisco. They did two shows per night for a week, and I saw them all because I worked there.
0: Wow. Pretty good. I bet. I mean, that's, listen, obviously Bob Marley and the Wailers, uh, amazing, amazing, you know, iconic musical group and Bob Marley in particular. But is that like, how many shows would that be? What's the math on that? <laughs> like, At least 10. In a row. That, I, I could probably do eight. 10 seems yeah. high.
2: Yeah. I mean, that would be a really interesting situation to actually get sick of like this
0: mm-hmm. once in a lifetime opportunity because it happened 10 times in a lifetime of a week right. Well, it sounds like it did not happen. This person did not get bored of Bob Marley and the Whalers, so what a cool experience. All right. so thank you to everyone who wrote in their responses to the greatest live show they ever saw. Uh, We have uh, an audience question for next week's show, which we're going to reveal at the end of the program, so stick around for that. This is Live Wire. Our next guest is the lead singer and founder of one of my very favorite bands of all time, The Flaming Lips. Over their 30 Plus years together, they've released 17 albums, won multiple Grammys and uh, put on live shows that are just they're weird in the absolute best possible way, including one that I went to last year in Oklahoma City during really the height of the pandemic. They had the entire audience and also the band sealed inside inflatable vinyl bubbles to keep people safe from COVID. Uh, We're going to be talking about that show a lot coming up in a moment here. Anyway, I have been a fan for decades, and I was so excited that we had the chance to talk to Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips last August. So take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Wayne. Wayne Coyne, welcome to LiveWire. All right.
4: Oh, some applause. I love that. Applause (laughs) applause always has an effect on you, doesn't it?
0: Yes. Well, thank you. Even after a year and a half in quarantine and pandemic and all that, you're still like the applause of a live crowd still kind of energizes you. Well, I have to say, you know,
4: even previous to the pandemic um, and the lockdown and the lack of um, audiences and all that, I, I was always reminded how appreciative it is to get someone's energy and yay and all that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, our little boy, uh, Bloom, he had his, his second birthday party. And I see that he's so used to applause and people <laughs> saying yay that whenever he hears it, he's just in a great mood. And I don't know if he thinks it's for him or if he just thinks this is just a, a good moment. So I'm taking my cue from him that every time I hear it, I feel like, oh, good. <laughs> something, yeah. Something positive and good and energetic is happening. Yeah.
0: I've noticed that on stage you have a move that you've been doing for years where you kind of like put both of your palms up and you kind of like you're sort of like energizing the crowd. It seems like you're always trying to get the audience as into this moment as you can get them
4: well you know it it's a it's a funny thing this this you know as an I don't always think of it like I'm an entertainer, you know, but sometimes the audience they want to be left off the hook that you can scream and go crazy. This isn't about being quiet and giving respect, you know, to the, to the artist up there. That's wonderful too. But I like, I like them to know like, Hey, you can be as energetic and as loud and as crazy as you want. And it's not going to mess up the show, you know? So I'm always, you know, I I want people to be as free and as crazy as they want. You know, we, we put balloons uh, into the audience and the balloons, you know, obviously come back and hit us in the face and all that. We don't care. And the, and the confetti's, flying everywhere. You know, I, I like the idea that it's it's a chaotic, joyful, out-of-control moment, and that could be the whole Flaming Lips show if if that's the way you want it.
0: Right. We're talking to Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips here on LiveWire. Speaking of live shows and um, getting chaotic, uh, you are due to go out on tour this summer and this fall. How are you uh, planning that when there's a lot of question marks around that kind of stuff?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's the same... Uh, quagmires that we have been in you know you always are uh, tipped a little bit into being optimistic like this thing may be over another month so we're planning on what's going to happen six months from now and then the minute you do that you're kind of like oh my god what have we done you know (laughs) are we making this thing worse so i'm going to do my best i'm still at the moment i still feel like i'm going to perform as much as i can in the space bubble oh okay and I think the, the guys at the front of the stage are going to have these sort of plexiglass protectors and just still go about it like we can still be carrying this around and we can still be giving it to young people. And, yeah, it's it's still um, – it's, it's I, I think it's still scary.
2: I think I saw you in the bubble like 19 years ago in yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah. So <laughs> it must be so funny that it's now this kind of functional public health <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it well, was just this whimsical,
4: you know, thing. Well, right, but I mean, part of it is still—I don't know how functional it is to everybody else. It's very functional <laughs> for the Flaming Lips, but I don't know if it's functional,
0: you know, in in general use. But and can I, Wayne? Can I just jump in for folks that aren't familiar? I'll just try to describe this yeah. efficiently. So. Uh, For a number of years, you've had this big vinyl bubble that's inflatable that you've gotten inside of during shows. This is all pre-pandemic. And sometimes you walk around on the crowd, you do fun stuff. And then you did this concert series in Oklahoma City during the pandemic where the crowd, the people who came to the show, they were in bubbles as well so that they were safe in this group environment. Uh, And so this is a thing that you've been doing for years and years. sounds like you're going to keep doing it until we know that the pandemic is really over.
4: Well, right. I mean, I think in the same way that we talk about the mask, you know, it's just our way of sort of of, of putting out there in the, in the world that we're still protecting you from us. You know, I guess we're the the variant that we sort of feel like because we're traveling to your city. You know, I feel like if you're in a city with your friends and your family and stuff, you know, that's – you're a little bit protected in in a sense. But, you know, the flaming lips we're getting in airplanes, we're going to be in, you know, six different cities in a week. And it's, you know, if something bad is happening in in Arizona and we're going to bring it to Los Angeles, you know. I mean, so there's a bigger responsibility, I I feel like, you know. And just our way of saying – we're able to do this, and we, we can do this, and we don't, we're not saying that everybody should do this. Um, and part of it is that we're slightly scared, too. You know, I have a, a young uh, boy. He's just over two years old, and Stephen has young kids, and Nick has young kids, and Derek has uh, three young kids. And, you know, um, when we come home from this stuff, you know, are we bringing something back, you know, and, and could potentially harm them? You know, it's just, it, it just all of it's very scary. One
2: of the things that I love about it is that it's it's protective but it's also theatrical. It's also a spectacle. It's also an event.
4: Well, I yeah, I mean I agree. I try to overlook that and think this oh, isn't cool. just it's not just a gimmick, you know, but it, I think it is. It's absolutely both. I mean, it looks like it would be fun. I think it looks funner than it actually is, but <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I actually, Wayne, I wanted to ask you about that because we're going to hear a song from one of these uh, space bubble concerts that you did in the spring, mm-hmm. and and I'm gonna I'm giving the listeners a heads up that, that what we're about to hear was actually recorded with you inside one of these bubbles, which I yep. was in Oklahoma City. I was kind of hanging out with you, and I was really struck by actually. The all of the kind of logistical implications of it, like particularly yeah. for you and the band and trying to hear each other and get it all kind of dialed in. There were yeah. times when there was so much condensation in your bubble that you were like wiping it down with your hands yeah. so you could see the crowd. Yeah, yeah Like it was yeah. work.
4: No, not not work in that sense. I mean, to okay. be able to be up there, you know, and sing in front of people. I think in those moments it it was it was so much fun and so so uh-huh. ecstatic. You know, I think of all the people in the world who would be slightly used to singing songs in a space bubble. I would be the only one. So, you know, it's <laughs> even though like you're talking about the logistics of how how can you make it all work you know fixing all the mechanical things and all the the ways that you can hear and all that sort of stuff um by time we got in front of an audience i would have probably forgot that i'm in a space bubble and the way that it sounds and all that sort of stuff i mean you know most concerts um are kind of a mess, you know, when you're the performer anyway. And I have to say, you know, in a sense, even though we are in the space bubbles, none of that is all that much different. You know, you're always, you know, in your own little world, hoping that it connects to this bigger audience. For me, I don't know, you know, there is an element of sort of, you know, joyous chaos that every mm. show that you ever do is is kind of like that.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take a listen to this. It's the Flaming Lips here on LiveWire. The Flaming Lips, right here on Livewire. I mean, do you realize recorded uh, inside uh, inflatable vinyl space bubble, so as to keep them and the audience safe? I'm wondering. Uh, we're talking to Wayne Coyne. Uh, did the lyrics of that song? You've been performing that song for many years now, but considering the moment in time that we're in, you know, there's a line in that song. Uh, do you realize everyone, uh, you know, someday will die? Like, is there a different feeling for you when you perform it in the midst of a pandemic?
4: you know for me i i would say by time we would get to that song in a space bubble concert it really would be a lot more of a triumphant realization mm. You know, I think sometimes that song, uh, Do You Realize, is just a, a little bit of like, oh, yeah, you're right. We are, we are on a planet uh, floating in an endless sea of space out here. and Oh, yeah, and the sun does go around us. And, <laughs> you know, all these, all these things. I think for the Space Bubble shows, it was almost the opposite. By the time we sang Do You Realize, it was like, oh, my gosh, I, I forgot what horrible chaos and pain the world is in. And I'm here escaping into this, this positive experience.
2: Isn't do you realize the state rock
4: song of Oklahoma, right? Well it 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 was. I yeah, mean let's I say, think there's a bit of a complication <laughs> there, right? What happened there, with this? Oh. Well, it's only because I'm so involved in the local Politics, you know, there was a competition, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, so a a long time ago now, where, you know, you could vote on these songs. I think there was a rock song, a folk song, and for Oklahoma, there's even a a country song, you know. Um, And we won uh, the state rock song, and we knew the legislature uh, guy who. Put the bill up. He was a big Flaming Lips fan. He was the one that sort of introduced the bill to the to the Senate. We knew a lot of the senators. We knew a lot of the people involved in it. We even knew the governor at the time. He was a big music fan. Wow. So, you know, I don't want to say that it was rigged in our favor, but I knew we had, we had a lot of, <laughs> lot of Flaming Lips fans. But we always knew that it was like a lot of things with politics. You know, it's temporarily here, but another administration may come in and say, Uh, We're not going to renew this or whatever. And we kind of knew that 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 would happen when the next (laughs) governor
0: came in, which is fine by us. Basically, the Flaming Lips are like the climate change of bands, and depending on who's in power, <laughs> ah! they may be taken seriously or may not in our winner-takes-all system. Well, I am, right, I am right. the
2: governor of my own heart, and it is still the state rock song oh, of Oklahoma right. in my heart.
4: <laughs> you, you, guys, you guys combined all the things that I said into something. That was, that was really great.
0: You are listening to a conversation that we recorded with Wayne Coyne here on LiveWire we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back with more from Wayne in a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one of a kind Handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to a conversation that we had with Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips. Let's get back to that. I was spending some time with you in Oklahoma City recently, Wayne, and I was struck by the like pace that you sort of keep up on a daily basis and just the amount of different creative endeavors that you're involved with. What is an average 24 hours like for you? And do you ever just like sit and relax? Or are you constantly writing notes to yourself and just sort of like... Creating? Yeah, I don't know. You know,
4: I mean, I really do love what I get to do. But, uh, you know, I would say, you know, we've been, the Flaming Lips have been a group since 1983. So I was 22 years old. I've been in the Flaming Lips my entire life. I'm 60 years old now. So that's a long, long time to have absolute freedom you know the job that i have really is one of the weirdest jobs in the world where it kind of is based on you doing what you like you know you're choosing the music that you do you're choosing the way you look you're choosing where you're going to go you're choosing who you collaborate with so you know i take all that and run with it i just think i'm just very lucky that the thing that i love to do is the situation that i'm in i mean even when i was growing up it's you know our our, our house wasn't about music per se. You know, it was creative and it was crazy. And I had older brothers and they had a bunch of crazy friends and motorcycles and drugs. And we would box in the front yard and just be. <laughs> and so I think the, the part of, you know, being in a band and even if you want to call it rock and roll or all that, that part of it, I'm very at home with a lot of chaos
0: and mm. being creative within the midst of that. I want to talk about your family a little bit because the latest Flaming Lips album, American Head, I read somewhere that it's sort of based on this kind of imagined intersection of like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers <laughs> and one of your brothers. Could you kind of like explain what you were thinking with that?
4: Right now, you know, you have to go back. It's you know, a few years before Tom Petty died. You know, Tom Petty. Now he's you know he's part of the mythology of of mm-hmm. all music or whatever, and he's he's more revered than ever. But previous to his death, you know, this documentary that the that he made. It's probably been out for 10 years or so now, but he did talk about the, when Tom Petty, before they were Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, they lived in uh, in Gainesville in Florida. Yeah, and they, they were they, like
0: Mud Crutch or something.
4: Yeah, and they made this drive, they were getting ready to, to make the drive to Los Angeles where their producer was going to, you know, start to work on their their first record, I suppose. And the producer, I forget his name, but he he had this idea that he would sort of cut them off at the pass, as they say, and met them in... Tulsa, Oklahoma, which Mm -hmm. I live in Oklahoma City, and Tulsa is about 120 miles to the northeast from here. We, We really go up there all the time, all the time, all the time. And at the time when Tom Petty would have been recording up in Tulsa, I know that my older brothers and their drug dealer motorcycle friends would have been back and forth from Tulsa doing crazy stuff really almost every day. And it wouldn't have surprised me at all if... My older brother had run into Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but my older brother—here's the dilemma: if I asked him if he thought he met Tom Petty, he would say
0: yes, even if
4: (laughs) he—even if he didn't. Right? Because you can't resist being part of this great American story. So Stephen and I started to think about: there are sometimes these lost recording sessions, you know, where something happened to the band and they never, no one ever knew about them and they never got famous and never got discovered. But Stephen and I kept imagining this other world where my older brothers and their friends met up with Tom and the band and they all got horribly addicted to drugs and they made this very sad, lo-fi, <laughs> homesick record in yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh. And the more Stephen and I would talk about this, the more we we started to think, we should make music like that, you know, not to pretend that we're Tom Petty and not to pretend that we're on drugs, but this type of music that's mm. homesick and you're singing about your mother and your dogs or whatever it is, that's just irresistible, you know, to think, oh, let's make that atmosphere and
0: let's make that be part of the vibe of our songs. I, I mean, this album, American Head, and and certainly a lot of your other stuff, it is this really interesting intersection of, of topics that are in a way a bit mournful, but presented in a way that doesn't leave you feeling sad as the listener, uh, which is a really uh, interesting balance that you're able to strike. Well, I think we got very lucky
4: in that the way that we were presenting the music you know we do lots of lots of ways that the flaming lips present themselves or whatever but in this sense we we wanted it to be sort of like storytelling you know and then and then the stories would be really about our life but like always you kind of mythologize it and you kind of make it a comic book or a, the bible or whatever it is you want to you, you want to put it into a, a story you know um and i think that started to really suit us you know i mean for steven and i we oftentimes do blend our life together. You know, things that happen to him and things that happen to, to myself, we'll blend them in a song. So, you know, the first two lines are about Stephen, the second two lines are about me, and it's just a great blend of expressionistic stuff. And in that sense, you know, it's the more you are able to sing about your deepest, most personal things, in music, it's almost like the more universal that becomes. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, when you try to right. say something that everybody's going to understand, it's almost so vague nobody gets it. And when you try to say something that you know nobody else will understand, only I feel this, it really is the thing in music that everybody
0: feels. Yeah, I have to say that I definitely feel that when I'm, when I'm listening to the Flaming Lips stuff. Wayne Coyne, thank you so much for stopping by LiveWire. Yeah, well, thank you. It it went great. Thank you so much. That was Wayne Coyne right here on LiveWire. The Flaming Lips' latest album, American Head, is available now. And they are going back out on tour in the U.S. beginning in September. So uh, look for them coming to a city near you. It is truly a very unforgettable experience to see them live. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be chatting with our friend, the great writer, John Mualem. He writes for The New York Times Magazine. Uh, He's got this book of essays out called Serious Face, which has been getting all kinds of praise, including, randomly, Jamie Lee Curtis. Loves the book (laughs) and loves to tweet about it. We're also going to be talking to a chef and owner of a new bar in Portland. Her name is Jenny Wynn. She has opened what we think is probably the first sports bar in America that exclusively plays women's sports on the television. It also has the greatest sports bar name of all time. It's called the Sports Bra. Their catchphrase is, we support women. It's right here in Portland, Oregon, and uh, we're going to talk to Jenny. We're also going to hear some music from Laura Veers, and we'll be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the LiveWire listeners for next week's show?
2: We want you to describe your dream business.
0: Ah, okay. I think that's in honor of Jenny Wynn going out and creating just this dream she'd have of a sports bar that was more inclusive and supportive of women's sports. She did it. So we want to hear what your dream business is. You can submit your answers on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio out there on the social media. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Daisy Hernandez and Wayne Coyne. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive
2: producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And our marketing manager is Paige Thomas.
1: A.
0: Walker Spring composes our music. And Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Aparna Bala Subramani of Beaverton, Oregon, and Stacy Owen of Portland, Oregon. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.